I'm Jeff Smith and welcome to the Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and my aim is to share those secrets here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going when times get tough. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Peter George. Peter is a public speaking coach. That itself is not that amazing. But what is amazing is that throughout his childhood, Peter dealt with having a lisp and a stutter. Consequently, he grew up shy and introverted, avoiding communication with others as much as possible. But when he got into the business world, he very quickly realised that his lack of presentation skills kept him at a severe disadvantage. After seeking help, he now credits his public speaking coaches for much of his business success. He's the award-winning author of The Captivating Public Speaker. Engage, impact and inspire your audience every time. This is going to be a story of childhood struggles, overcoming adversity, and then using that adversity to understand and to help other people to find their voice. So let's bring in the amazing man himself. Welcome to the show, Peter George. Hi, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Peter, it's wonderful to have you here. I know we've tried several times to make this happen, so <laughs> <laughs> but we kept on going and we're there, we're there, we made it. So it really is wonderful to have you here today. You're looking good. How's things in your life, sir? Things are awesome. No complaints whatsoever. Good. Well, I want to find out about your life, how you overcame that adversity, of course, and of course your book. And before we came on to the show, you told me you're up for an international award very soon. So we'll find out about that. So it's no ordinary book. But before we do that, I want to find out more about you, Peter. So three questions to get us off the mark. Where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. And for those of you who are somewhat familiar with the U.S., that's in New England, upper right-hand corner of the country. And I had a great childhood, other than my two speech impediments. And all right, so that's where I was born. Second one was, Jeff? What was life like for you? Ah, life was pretty good. 
a lot of people think if you grow up in the city with two speech impediments, you'd be picked on. And I think that's actually true. But I kept my mouth shut as much as I could, spoke only to my family, closest friends, never spoke in school. But I became pretty, uh, pretty good at sports. I played hockey, baseball, and football, so I was playing sports year-round. And if you played sports and were decent at it, you didn't get picked on. Okay. So, so, so I had a great, great childhood. Grew up in a family, not much money. One of those families that you didn't have everything you wanted, but you had everything you needed. Mm-hmm. My father was a firefighter, but he worked at least one other job, sometimes two other jobs to make ends meet. Wonderful, wonderful family. Uh, great childhood. And my aspiration was to be my dad. <laughs> wonderful. I, I was lucky. A lot of kids want to grow up to be firefighters. Uh, some kids want to be grow up to be like their dad. I had both those things. And that was my intention, was to be a firefighter. But my father knew that wasn't for me. And he gently kept pushing me towards school and college and the like and moving on to the corporate world, which is exactly what I did. So once again, I can look back. And my dad died when I was 30 years old. He died fairly young. And... Uh, I can look back and go, God, once again, he was right. <laughs> Bless him. What was his name? Uh, Edward. Ed. Uh, he had Ed. a nickname, nickname of Ref. Ref? Short for referee. Okay. Was he a referee? No. His his brothers were much bigger than he was. My father was 5'8". Uh, his two brothers were 6'2 and 6'3 okay. in height. So they were they were massive. He wasn't. And when they were small and they'd go out and play football, he was always too small to play, so he would referee. <laughs> and he got the nickname right. So he was Talk told to referee right. by the others. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So this these two speech impediments that you have, they obviously have uh, a big impact upon your life. So mm-hmm. you go you go through school without speaking. I mean. How do you do that? With agreements with your teachers. Okay. What what I said was to my teachers, if you call on me, I will not answer you. It's just not going to happen. You can stare at me, I'll stare back, and we'll get nowhere. However, I will show you my homework before class, after class, whatever you want. Just do not make me speak in class because it's not going to happen. Uh, and and what about friendships? How did you get on? My Pretty well. Pretty well. What I found was, just like there are people who stutter, and then they start to sing, and they don't stutter at all, and they sing beautifully, there were certain things that I spoke about that I wouldn't stutter. Or if I did, it wouldn't be very often. And that was music and sports. And later on, when I got older, business. But if I talked about anything that was near and dear to me, then I would stutter. If I was talking about something that I was nervous about or didn't know well, I would stutter profusely. So I would even have a block where I couldn't get started. So when I spoke about those certain things, and it's funny because a lot of people say, all you ever talk about are these uh, certain lighthearted things. You know, you don't get deep into anything. And today that's true. And my wife will tell you that's true today because it's still in my head that if I talk about anything like that, that I'm just going to stutter, which is probably not the case, but I believe it is. But just in case, okay. Yeah. I, I had an older brother. He was seven years older than me. He's passed now. 
that he had a stutter also. And no one understood how he had the stutter or the cause or anything like that. I can say that when he was stressed or emotional or excited, he couldn't get any words out. Um, right. But help us to understand what it was like for you having a stutter. What do you think was the cause? You, you've alluded to some of it, but now you've come into a public speaking coach, which is huge. So help me to understand having a stutter, a lisp, and, and conquering it to where you are now. Every Tuesday morning for the first hour of school, this was from the fourth grade through the eighth grade, I was sent to this room with a woman that I referred to as Cruella, after Cruella DeVille <laughs> of 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. And she was not a nice person. It was, come in here, stand up straight, shut the door, repeat after me for an hour. And she would have me in tears, just repeating things, whether they were uh, tongue twisters or certain words, whatever, and over and over again. And, you know, this will never get me anywhere. But somehow it did. By the time I entered high school, my lisp and my stutter were all but gone. Okay. And so it was really her who terrorized me, I would tell you, I did not want to go to school on Tuesday mornings because I knew I'd spend the first hour crying. Mm. So what do you think she did that helped you bypass these limitations? I really think she put a spell on me somehow because I think she was a witch, but <laughs> I, it, it, what she did... And, and I don't know, because I don't know today's techniques, but I can't see what she would do then of that just pressure and repetitiveness and, and really no empathy or anything else along with it. I don't think it would fly today. I, I have to believe there are much better techniques, but it worked. Mm. What do you For think? All, the, what do you think? As the root, much as I hated it. Yeah. It worked. What do you think the root cause was for you? Never, never was told. Okay. No one, no one ever figured it out or told me, and I don't think she was interested in figuring out why. Mm -hmm. She was just driven to get rid of it. Okay. So you obviously still think that it will come back at some point. And mm -hmm. so do you, do you have to be consciously aware now? I often second guess what I'm going to say. Like, even when... The thing that's nearest and dearest to me, I love both my parents, but my dad was just my hero. And I speak of that now in a business sense. But if you got me speaking about it per truly personally, what my dad meant to me, then you, it, well, it's it's starting to come now. You'll hear it break up my pattern of speech. Yeah, it's emotional. Yeah, it, yeah. it, really, it, it really is, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Ed, for all of the lessons. Bless you. Okay. So, you you wanted to be a fireman. Actually, I did too. Yeah, a lot uh, of kids did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same here in the UK. Most firemen are poorly paid. A big chunk of their salary goes into pension, and they have to then have two or three jobs in order to make ends meet. Crazy, really, when you consider the job that they do. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's a lot of jobs are underpaid and 
my father would have said back then it wasn't if you had a second job it was what is your second job yeah yeah absolutely most builders around here so uh, there's quite a few houses that are taking quite a long time to be built and it's the fire crew that are building them that's what they do (laughs) so when a house is taking a long time you think ah i bet the crew are on that one and more often than not it is okay so you've banished the speech impediments to become a speaking coach which is awesome but no ordinary speaking coach your your thing is about teaching everyday people particularly in business the strength of having good presentation skills in their business so tell us about what you do and why do you believe it's so important for business people to have good presentation skills well let's take it from warren buffett's point of view now here's a guy who's done okay for himself you know you talk about secrets of success yeah he'll tell you one of his major secrets of success is the public speaking he caught uh, took when he public speaking course he took when he was 27 years old and his point was he could he knew he couldn't lead and explain his visions and get people to follow directions accurately if he could not communicate concisely specifically and clearly so when you help people do that speak more clearly concisely get their point across keep people engaged so they listen to each part of it then things go more smoothly from that point on it's great to have the information it's great to have knowledge but if you can't share it in a way that others will act on it understand it and do what they need with that information and you can't transform someone when you're speaking then all that knowledge it might not be worthless, but it won't be worth as much as it should be. Yeah, for sure. How long did it take you to realize that when you got into business? What was the dawn of realization for you? Because you were in the corporate world first, right? Yeah, I got out of school and went into the corporate world, and uh, I was in marketing. That was my background. And I thought, this is great. I'll sit in my office. I'll do my work. I never have to speak to the world. Because even though the lisp and the stutter had pretty much gone, the remnants of it hadn't. Yeah. I still didn't really want to communicate with people. And then one day, my boss came into my office and said, we have to present to the head of the company, the president of the company. It's a worldwide corporation. And I said, you know I don't do that. And basically what happened was he said, okay, and came back an hour later and told me to clean up my desk. And this was too good a job to lose. So at that point, I said, where do I get help? His reply was, that's what you should have said an hour ago. And I went and got help. He didn't fire me. I went and got help. And it was group coaching. And what I learned, Jeff, was I had been studying communication my whole life. I'd just been studying it from the other side of the coin, yeah. how to avoid it. Yeah, yeah. But I absolutely. watched it. Yeah, I yeah. was watching it very, very closely. So when I went to this group coaching that I thought I would hate, absolutely hate, I loved it. And I loved going to each meeting every week. And then when that was done, I said, where can I get more of this? And I learned that I could get individual coaching one-on-one. And I got that. And I that was 
awesome. Then I left the corporate world and started my own company. And when I started my own company, another worldwide organization came to me because I was the only one using their product, brand new product in our area. And they said, will you come with us throughout New England and upstate New York to talk about your su success with this new product? I said, I would love to do that. And my wife, who is my partner in this company, and she's an accountant by education, noticed that every time I went out and spoke, we got a, a bump in revenue. You sold so it didn't take her, her along to say, stop coming home, stay out on the road, keep talking, we'll make a lot of money. <laughs> now there's, there's, there's the turn of events, huh? Okay. So I don't speak as much on the road as I used to, but every once in a while she'll look at me and say, don't you have to be somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Get out, go talk. Okay. <laughs> so what, what was that product you were selling? Uh, the the company's product, yeah, yeah. or our product. Well, well, the both. Company. What what were you selling? What were you involved in doing? I started a publishing company. Didn't know the this was in 1990. Didn't know the first thing about it. Had a bride of three months, and I'm telling her this very intelligent woman that I'm going to start a company of which I have no background, no knowledge, whatsoever. All I knew is I was a very good marketer, and if I wanted to do something, I could market it well. And that's what I promised her. The fact that she stayed with me still amazes me to this day. <laughs> and uh, the joke is, it took me three years to get her to leave her corporate position to come work for me. And then I worked for her for the next 12 till we sold the company. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I'm in the same position right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, the company was Adobe. And Adobe had just come out with InDesign, which is what you use to format books, newspapers, uh, mm -hmm. magazines and the like. And there was a king of the hill at the time. And Adobe wanted to unseat that king. And we were one of two companies in New England using the product when it first came out in design, which was horribly slow. You refresh a page, you could go jog two miles, come back, shall I have lunch? And then maybe it would be refreshed. It was painfully slow. So most people wouldn't adopt it. We did the other company was in Boston, but the other company wasn't as enthused about it as we were. And when the Adobe called us and said, you know, how are you seeing how it's going? It's one of two companies using it right now. And I said, I love it. It's going to get faster. Don't worry about it. It will be in version two. And other than that, I love it. My designers like it. They don't love it as much as I do, but they like it. And that's when they said, well, then help us spread the word. And as I went out and talked, like I said, we had a bump in revenue each time and it took off from there. Excellent. So tell me about your publishing company. Why? <sighs> I got involved in high-end collectibles, manufactured coll collectibles, <clears throat> and found out you couldn't find much information. And I said, well, if, if I'm looking for that information, and I went to an expo in the middle of the country, and everybody's saying, we're looking for more information. Wow. There's a niche here. There's a need. My wife, my intelligent wife, the logical thinker, when I told her I was going to do this, after she asked me what I knew about publishing, she said, well, if you can't get information, where are you going to get the information to publish a magazine about it? I'm like, okay, now you're just being too done logical. I'll figure <laughs> that out later. <laughs> That's and we the did. accountant's brain, huh? So what did and you do then? Uh, so we 
mostly me. I went, anybody who would talk to me, I knocked on their door and said, please help. And even with the printing, we worked with Kebacore, who's the world's largest printer. Even them, I I think, I know nothing about this. Let me sit with your pre-press people for a week or two and learn the system because the better we can give you our files, the less it's going to cost us on correcting mistakes and the like. And we did that. So it was great that I didn't know what I didn't know because I learned everything the correct way, not the shortcut way. We ended up making some of our own shortcuts later on, but we learned it exactly how it should be done to best serve the people who bought our product and best serve the people who made our product. Okay. So the secret of having a highly collectible or a top-selling book, is it much to do with the book or is it more to do with the marketing of the book? Well, I think at first it's the marketing of the book because you have to get it out there. But just like in speaking, the, the greatest marketing a speaker can have is a good talk. If it's engaging, if it serves the audience, then you get asked to give that again. So same thing with the book. The book gets known for what it's doing, and then that creates more sales, which creates more sales, and hopefully, knock on wood, this keeps happening. So I wrote a book that follows my process for training others, almost verbatim, and it's modular. And that's what I think the success comes from. You can go from cover to cover, which I do suggest because it builds on itself. But you could also say, you know, I just want to work on my voice right now, my tonality, my intonation, pausing and the like. You can just read that chapter and it can stand on its own. So in that modular effect, it serves people who are trying to accomplish a few different things, all to the same end, but in different manners. Okay. So we've spoken about your corporate life. Uh, You don't want to speak. And then you ask to clear your desk. Okay, I'll speak. (laughs) I'll get help. And then you find out that you actually quite like this environment that you're in, which is wonderful. I want to talk to you now about the transferability of these skills, because I know I've been to meetings and I've heard other people say, you know, that's an hour of my life I'm never going to get back. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. We have all been there. So we've spoken about speaking skills, but we haven't said what those speaking skills are. So why, I think we understand why we need to have them. So let's begin the journey of what they are and how do they transfer into meetings, which we've all been to. The reason we leave those meetings is we got no, we, we left the same way we entered the room. Or we got on Zoom and got off Zoom the same way we came on Zoom. Nothing was transformed. We might have gotten more information, but if we're getting purely information, put it in a PDF, email it to me. I'll read it on my sofa or at my desk, whatever it might be. I don't have to go to a meeting for that. So that's what happens. We often forget that we're there not only to serve the people listening, even if you're their boss, you're there to serve them so they can do their job well. But we think 
because of that, we think that we need to inform them. But if that's all we're doing, like I said, put it in a PDF and email it. However, if you concentrate on transforming them with this information, now they know how they can go do this and accomplish that. If they're transformed in some way, that's a meeting. No one walks out of that meeting saying, I'll never get that hour back because they leave differently than they came in. However, we often concentrate because we think a presentation is just vomiting information on people. We think of that as informing them when we should think about transforming them. So thinking about a meeting then, Peter, can you give me an example of what the difference is then between information and transformation. So if we're saying we need to provide transformation, what is it exactly? Can you give me an example? Sure. It depends on the particular situation, but let's say you're in a sales meeting and you want to give people new sales techniques, or you want to tell them how Jeff uh, wasn't meeting his quota and he went and learned this particular thing and then succeeded. And you hear that a lot. And again, that's just information. We could put that, hey, Jeff, congratulations, you're doing great and distribute it to everybody. Here's what Jeff went through. But if we can also address what I, listening there as another salesperson, Jeff's counterpart, I'm like, wow, Jeff just went out and learned that and he did this. I tried the same thing. It didn't work for me. If it wasn't included that Jeff had this conflict or this this obstacle, yet he overcame it in this way, because I'm going to face a very similar obstacle. Most likely, we're selling the same product, same company, similar prospects. Tell me how Jeff failed. Then tell me how Jeff wanted to give up, if this is all true. And then tell me how Jeff overcame that. So when I start seeing these road bumps, I can say, ooh, I have inspiration. Jeff ran into the same thing, as opposed to Jeff went out and learned this and just killed it after that. Then why am I seeing all these obstacles? Jeff's much better than me. I'm horrible. I give up. So think about what's necessary along with that information to show me how I can, I'm going to run into things, how I can overcome them, and then be transformed at the end. That's the difference. It's not just saying, go do this, which so many of us do. It's the shorthand. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, a lot to do with engagement as well there. Interaction and engagement. Exactly. Great. So another thing I hear quite a lot about public speaking is that it's quoted to be the number one fear. (laughs) And uh, one humorous line I heard is that you know, pe- people are more afraid of speaking than they are dying. <laughs> so they mean they they'd rather be in the casket than give the eulogy, which is crazy, right? <laughs> so why is it that people have this fear of speaking in front of others? Well, there are several reasons, but let's clear that one up. It's not the number one fear. Studies are actually done on fears. It ranks like seventh. It's actually behind clowns and spiders. So, uh, and and let's be serious. If if you're 30,000 feet up in a silver tube and it starts nose nose diving towards the earth, you'd much rather be in a meeting, giving a a presentation. 
If you're in a dark alley with a gun to your head, you'd much rather be on stage speaking. So it's not the number one fear, but it's a, it's something we face almost every day where we don't necessarily face dying every day. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. When there's a spider in our house, we think that's an omen to sell the house and move elsewhere. So we're both petrified of spiders. So it does rank back there. However, why does that happen? We can go back hundreds of thousands of years to the so-called caveman days. And if we saw a lot of eyes looking at us, that wasn't a normal situation. And you got to remember, Jeff, your brain on about six times a second basis looks out for your protection, looks out for harm, keeps you. uh, That's its number one uh, responsibility is keep its organism alive. So if we were in our compound, our village, and we saw a lot of eyes looking at us, either it was our tribe who was not happy with us. They didn't come over to sing us happy birthday. And they were either going to kill us or banish us from the village, and therefore we were going to die one way or the other. If it wasn't our tribe, it was another tribe, which meant they already wiped out everybody else and you're next. And if it wasn't human beings, wild animals, which meant you were dinner. So our brain and and our reptilian brain, the oldest part of our brain, it knows that a bunch of eyes looking at us is a stressful situation. Okay, so we have that back there. But then let's get to more, uh, more recently. When we were children, did your parents say, don't speak until you're spoken to? Don't speak while the adults are speaking. Don't speak so loudly. Don't speak. Don't speak. Don't speak. And then you're eight years old and you go to class and the teacher says, Jeff, come up and talk about this book and speak in front of the class. They don't tell you how to do it. They just tell you to do it, which means they're setting you up for failure. Your classmates laugh. And even though it shouldn't, that sticks with you for maybe the rest of your life. Now we get older, we translate that into, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to get up there and forget what I'm, I'm saying. What if I can't engage them? What if I screw up? We do all this, what if I, what if I, what if I, what if me, what if me, what if me? And man, that's an awful lot of weight to carry on your shoulders. So I think people are more afraid of getting embarrassed, getting embarrassed. I also think that confidence comes from competence. And because we're not competent in public speaking, no one ever taught us. Well, if we haven't been taught, why should we have confidence? Different scale entirely, but if you were jumping out of a very stable plane because you thought it would be a good try to uh, with no schooling at all, no instruction at all to jump out of a plane to pull a ripcord, I got to believe you'd be really nervous because you had no competency in it. When you get trained, you'll still have those same feelings, but it'll be positive adrenaline instead of negative negative adrenaline that we label as nervousness. And then it's exciting to jump out of a perfectly good plane. Okay, so we are conditioned then to fear public speaking, but it's a skill. And as we know, a skill can be learned. So how anybody? Yeah. So how do we overcome this fear of public speaking? Get a little competency, learn about public speaking, whether it's online courses, working with someone like me, going to Toastmasters. Toastmasters is all around the world. It's been around the world for 100 years. It's there for a reason. 
It's not expensive at all. I, a lot of them don't charge at all. Some charge uh, 10 pounds, $10 around here uh, per meeting. Great organization. You'll get some skill. You get some repetitiveness. You get some help. Uh, read a book. I can give you a name of a great book to read. And uh, just get help in one way or another. And then as you get more competent, competent at it, just keep trying. Repetitiveness helps. It doesn't make you perfect, no more than yeah, skiing down a hill yeah, send you yeah, to the Olympics. For sure. So I'll, I'll share a, a little something with you in that at school, I was very quiet, very shy, sat at the back. Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. Just the same. No speech impediment, just crippled with lack of confidence and shyness. So then how did I come out of this? Well, for me, I was a musician, so I had to go play on stage. Can you imagine being shy, no confidence, and there you go. Now you're the centre of attention, playing keyboard on stage, all on your own. So I kind of had to do it, but I was competent at the music side. I just had to go and do it, which I did. But I didn't speak, not, not to begin with. But for me, what happened? My dad, who I also um, had a really good relationship, he was a, a raconteur. So when we used to go out with friends, and I used to go with my mum and dad, my dad always had a story to tell. And no one knew whether it was a joke or whether it was real. Nice. So, and then more often than not, Peter, it was a joke. But my dad would just reveled in telling the story. And so I used to sit back and watch him. And I was watching how this communication was working. And it had people on the edge of the seats and things like this. And I thought, there's something here in this storytelling that my dad is enjoying doing and captivating everyone's attention. I'll give it a go. So the way I did it, you know, when you meet friends and say, oh, you have any jokes and people tell a joke and it doesn't last very long and no one thinks it's funny. Something. <laughs> okay. How can I take that joke and, and make it a story and get everyone interested without them knowing it's a joke. So that's how I began communicating better with other people. That's brilliant. Yeah, so that really works <laughs> and I still do it now. So when I start talking, um, <laughs> I have two daughters, Sophie and Lara, they go, hang on, wait a minute, is this real? Or is this a joke? <laughs> because we still don't know. <laughs> so, so that was how I developed my, um, let me say, speaking skills or storytelling skills. Later in life, when I became a professional speaker, I then understood the power of storytelling within a speech. So... What I'm going to do is hand that one over to you. But I'm saying I didn't go to Toastmasters. I used to be on stage crippled with fear of speaking. And the way I got out of it was enjoying the journey of extending jokes and 
bringing people in. That's what gave me the competence that you're speaking of. And from that, then the confidence came. So the, that's how I did it. So Do now you agree once you built that confidence, it permeated other parts of your life? Oh, without doubt. Yeah. 100%. Like, there's no way I would have hosted a podcast. So I speak with people all over the world, some very influential people. I would never, ever begin to think about starting a conversation. So here's an award-winning author I'm speaking to now, about to win, I hope, in the next couple of weeks in Wembley, London, an international award for best business book of the year. And I'm, and I'm going to speak to him. Right now, hey, I'm cool. If you'd rewind me <laughs> 20, 20 years, my knees would have been knocking. Well, maybe longer than 20 years ago. But the thing is, and you're so right, build up the core competence and then the confidence follows. And so many people come to me at a conference, you know, when I come off stage and they say, hey, Jeff, do you get nervous when you go on stage to speak? I say, no. And they said, oh, wow, I get so nervous. And I said, do you really understand your subject so well that if everything went wrong, you lost your notes, you lost your PowerPoint, you'd still be able to deliver your speech? And they went, oh, no way. And I said, then you deserve to be nervous right. because you're not competent in your subject matter. And they go, oh, yeah, I think you're right there. And so many times that's happened, power cuts and things like that, where you just carry on anyway. So that's important. Competence gives birth to confidence. It really does. And like I said, it permeates other parts of your life. So it's a great residual benefit. And when you talk about storytelling, that's that helps in so many ways. One, it helps you remember what you want to present because stories are fairly easy. You don't have to tell them perfectly. Odds are you're not going to tell them perfectly. And let's face it, back to the old, I caught a fish this big. The next time the fish is bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> we embellish stories as we go on because we don't even want to uh, keep our stories the same. They change. So tell a story. They're easy to remember. So now you don't have to worry about forgetting that part. So at least that part of your presentation is going to be really solid. And stories have a moral. So now people will take something from that. Think of any fable you heard as a kid, the, the tortoise and the hare. Uh, it's, you know, slow and st steady wins the race. Well, that's the moral of the story. All those stories we learned as little kids had morals to them. Tell a story, people take that moral away from them. Even if you have to say at the end, and what this means to you is, it still works. Stories engage people, and we remember them. I haven't heard the tortoise in the here or the three little pigs or uh, uh, Goldilocks or any of those since my kids were little and my kids are in their forties now. So, but I can still remember them perfectly. Nope, not at all. But could I get them across fairly well? Yeah. Would people get the moral of the story? Definitely. And that's what matters. So storytelling is in, an important part which we'll come on to in a moment. So your book, The Captivating Public Speaker, engage, impact, and inspire your audience every time. I can tell you're a marketer, right? 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so here we go then, Peter. Why did you write it? Who is it for? I mean, specifically, who is it for? And what will they gain from reading it? Having been a publisher, I know what it takes to write a book, mm -hmm. which is why it didn't get written for so long. And then a business associate of mine in Florida, he and I were on the phone and he said, when are you going to write that book you've been talking about for so long? And now this gentleman has six New York's time, New York Times bestselling business books. And I said, Bob, I'll get to it. He said, give me a date. And I gave him a date. And I didn't want to embarrass myself, so I started working on the book, and I got it done actually a month before that date. So that's why. Who is it written for? The people who want to develop better skills, not so much for themselves, which is one of the reasons, but so you can serve others more effectively. And that can be an aspiring speaker, a professional speaker, people like yourself who go out and get paid for speaking. But also you use it within the business realm as well. So whether you're giving talks in a sales meeting or a corporate meeting, or if you go out and speak to the community for your company, any of these, if you're an attorney and you speak in court or speak in uh, to get depositions, any of these where you're speaking in public, it'll build up those skills. And when you have those skills, again, take Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, these are three tremendous entrepreneurs who will say that the greatest skill you can develop is a communication skill. And so it's geared to the people who want to do this. It's often using anecdotes and stories based on my experience. So a lot of it is public speaking on a stage as a professional public speaker, but it also relates to people who are speaking in other situations as well. So this is about building the core competence of what it takes to speak. Yeah, and one of the greatest reviews I get from people is when they say it was fun. Yeah, lovely. It it's not it's not drudgery. I try to make it fun. You might not hear it here, but I have a very dry, odd sense of humor. And that comes out in the book. And in some places it's a little self-deprecating maybe. And I have fun with that too. But the idea is for you to be engaged in that book and use it almost as a textbook. But here's what it includes, Jeff, where so many books just talk about the how, which is great. This one also talks about the why. Mm -hmm. So you can take that why and realize how you can implement that how in various situations, as opposed to here's where you're going to use it, and that's the only place you know it to be. You can see with that why, oh, I can use that here or here or in this instance. And that's the greatest feedback I'm getting from it. This is awesome. I, we spoke prior to this interview and I explained that I was studying how successful people become successful and the, the 11 steps that they follow. What's interesting from what you've just said is that when I asked why did you write it? You explain why. And the guy that's written a number of books said, okay, Peter, give me a date. And you gave him a date. And you complete it. You know, one of the traits with all successful people, bar none, 
they have a date. Got to have a date. You, you, you've got to know what you want and you have to have a date. And that's one of the steps that was common to every successful person that I've interviewed. So I was smiling inside when you said, oh, give me a date. He said, so I gave him a date and then and I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the book was finished a month before the date. Yeah. So because that's what happens. So that is definitely one of the 11 steps of success. And very early on, it's part of step one, actually. It's knowing what you want and applying some specificity. The other one is a reason why. And lots of people, well, successful people understand why they're doing something. And if the reason why is big enough, clear enough and vivid enough, then it doesn't matter what adversity befalls them, they overcome it because the why is there. If there's no reason why and there's no date and adversity comes, this thing called procrastination takes over. Yeah, I'll get on to that tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was really interested to say, yeah, give me a date. And then you're talking about why, because they are the key ingredients for success in whatever chosen field of endeavor. Yeah, okay. And I don't want to make it sound like it was smooth. No. If you, read this, if you read this book, Jeff, that's the third version of this book. Yeah. I completed it, well, just shy of completing it twice before. And when I got to the end, I said, I don't like the way this came out and started at square one again and went through almost the entire book again, creating outlines, doing all my due diligence and got to the end and said, I don't like this. Okay. Started the third time. And that's when I said, this is it. Okay. So there'll be someone listening here that says, I'm thinking of writing a book. That's listening to what we're saying here and thinking, hmm, now, What's fascinating is, I don't know whether you discovered this yourself, but when you got to the end of the book, what you thought was the end, and you thought, I don't like how this has come out, I need to go back to the beginning. Did you find the person you were at the end of the book was a different person to who you were at the beginning of the book? That's an awesome question, and definitely. There was a transformation. Yeah. There was a transformation. It's funny because I've been teaching this style that I created for a long, long time. And at least the last 10 years. And while I was writing the book, I thought to myself in some instances, I don't know how to put this on paper. And if I don't know how to put it on paper, then is the way I'm explaining it to my clients as clear as I think it is? Probably not. So by writing the book and trying to put my process down on paper, then I had to uh, rethink and recreate some of the things I did. And so in so many ways, whether it was the, the format of my teaching that changed, that transformed, or me as a person in general transformed, and I think my empathy increased. And I think I have a lot of empathy for my clients to begin with. But I think that increased as well. So 
putting things down on paper and just going through that process, if you never published the book, I think it's a great exercise. Indeed, totally. Shop in so many other parts of what you do. Yeah. I'll share with you what I did on mine, and you'll appreciate this as a marketing guy. I had the I had the idea for the book, and I wanted it to make a difference in the world. That was my why. I wanted to help the people who were following this path that I'd trodden alone, and I knew there would be other people coming along this path, and my my reason why, let me help these people because there's nothing there to help. That was my reason why. So what I did, I had the idea and I had some sexy titles like how to make more profit and keep it, how to make more profit in less time and all of these things. And I put a date on it, which was one year ahead, 365 days. I wrote it down and then I took the idea to a few people and I said, hey, Peter, I'm writing a book. What do you think about this? And they'd look at it and they'd go, uh-huh. And I'd really be watching their responses and they go, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, it's it's not hit the mark. So why is it not hit the mark? So they said, tell me what it's about. So I said, it's this, that, this, that. And they said, oh, so it's a book about key performance indicators, KPI. I said, yeah. So they said, oh, it'll be a KPI book then. Yeah. Now, I kept hearing that over and over and over again. So I thought, I'm not going to swim against the tide here. I'm going to call this book The KPI Book. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It does what it says on the, on the cover. Now, what I did then, and I'm three months into my goal now, I've set the date, and I've not written a single word. And I'm telling everybody I'm writing a book, and it'll be done on this date. My neck is really in the noose now. And I'd not written a book before. But what I did from a marketing point of view, I created the advertisement first. And then I showed the advertisement to people. And I kept on tweaking it and tweaking it and changing it based on the responses that they were giving me. So at first of all, they'd say, oh, yeah, good luck. Enjoy. That'll be interesting. When I tweaked it to the point where people say, ah, that looks good, when can I buy a copy? I think, ah, now I've got it. Right. right. Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you, Peter, is because once I created the advertisement, that determined what I needed to write. So once I'd started writing and I'd written something, I thought, does this do what my advertisement is promising it will do. And in most of the cases, it didn't. And I had to become a different person to who I would have been at the beginning of the book. So when I finished, I learned a lot more, of course, which I think is fascinating. That's why I share with everybody. You know, when you write a book, you really learn a lot. You do. Yeah. So I use the advertisements as my guiding light. And um, and the rest is history, as they say. It's done okay. It's funny, the exact word I was going to use, you created a guiding light. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's what awesome. it was. That was kept me in check. Now, I've spoken to other people on the show who've written books, and they've not sold. 
And I share that story with them and they go, oh, how fascinating. I wish I'd have done that. And I said, here's the difference. You've written a book and then you wanted a number one bestseller. What I did, I wanted a number one bestseller and then I wrote the book. Right, there you go. So the difference is I wrote a book that people wanted to buy rather than writing a book that I wanted to write. And that's a huge difference. To keep the person in mind who I was writing to, I had three photographs all together of three different people. No people, it was, they were stock photos. Yeah, yeah. But in my head, those were three avatars that would read the book. Yeah. I would write to them and write to them. And I talked to those people an awful lot, by the way. Yeah. In my office while I was writing, I would ask them questions. It's just photographs. What, what do you think of this? Would you use this? Sometimes they said no. <laughs> Sometimes they said yes. Sometimes they said, yeah, maybe if you tweak it a little. But it was very uh, instrumental in me getting down what I wanted to get down and revising it. And I had a great editor, too. So my editor deserves as much of the success of the book as I do. Yeah. Awesome. Great. We learn so much. So how do we buy your book? Well, it's actually uh, easiest way for you guys is Amazon in the UK. Mm -hmm. for people in the UK, but it's on all the Amazons that it can be. In the US, people can just go to PeterGeorgePublicSpeaking.com and they can hit a link there that'll take them to the US Amazon. But uh, so the various Amazons, easiest way to do it. Okay, so it's available all over the world. That's good. Yes. So let, let's think, we've talked about gaining core competence. What about the structure of a speech? Do you have any tips on how to put a speech together? Yeah, quickly. The two most important parts, arguably, are the opening and the ending, and probably the most important part being the ending. So devise those, memorize those. Don't memorize your whole talk. Memorize what you want to talk about, the points you want to make, but don't memorize your whole talk except those two parts. And an opening, unless it's a story, is only a sentence or two. The closing, unless it's a story, is only a sentence or two. So it doesn't take much to memorize them. And the reason you want to memorize those is, let's go with the ending first. Most important part of the speech, you want to get it right. And what the human brain, again, to protect you, often does that undermines you, it says you're getting out there to and you're talking and you're coming up to the end and you have this end that you've been rehearsing for a month now and your brain says, hey, Jeff, you know what would be a good ending? Say this instead. And so many times we go, you're right. Well, what are the odds that's gonna be a better ending? Sometimes it is, something happened along the way, you can address that and it, make, it just makes it all come together. But other than that, it undermines us. Go with that ending that you've rehearsed because you knew that would make the difference. Same thing with the opening. Give an opening, whether it's a question, a story, a startling statistic, whatever it might be that grabs people by the throat. You wanna reach out and grab them by the throat and get their attention. It's not, well, thank you for having me here today, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to uh, thank the mayor for being here and so-and-so for sponsoring this. 
Jeff, I don't know every article you've ever read in a magazine, but I got to believe that the vast majority of them started with a headline and then got into the body. It didn't start with, I'd like to thank the editor for choosing my article and the sponsors <laughs> within the magazine. No, it's the headline. It gets your attention and then you start reading. A headline gets our attention. You grab them by the throat at the beginning and you get into your presentation. None of the let's uh, tread into the water a little at a time and get used to the water. Jump right in. And when you jump right in, you have them, you keep them. If you lose them, you don't jump right in, then it takes an awful lot of work to get them back. If you do get them back. And the same thing with the ending. Don't just have it. Well, that's my talk. Well, you know what? When you shut up, I was pretty much sure that was your talk. When, you know, <laughs> all, all that, or, or even worse, that's all the time they gave me, which makes it sound like I could have helped you more had the people who put the event on given me more time and it's their fault. So just end with a strong ending. Start with a strong start. Everything else, there's certain things to do to make the body strong, but those are the two most important. Okay. Do you have any tips for what tip, a structure for ending well? Same thing. It can be a question. It can be a story. But here's what happens a lot, Jeff. We don't give thought to it, right? We just get there and go, well, thank you. But let's say you went to, I don't know, let's say it's a weight loss seminar you're going to. And they tell you all the benefits of losing weight and the effect it has on your heart and less cancer risk and all these great things for your life. You get to see your grandchildren grow up, all these things. But the person never tells you at the end what to do next. So you have all this great information, information, not transformation. You have all this information. You go, should I go home and clean out my refrigerator and my, my cupboards? Should I go shop at a natural food store? I don't know what to do. Uh, this is too much work. I'm just going to live the life the way I've been living it. If you want to have a call to action, have a call to action. If you want them to do something or think something or whatever it might be that's going to be different than what they were doing, that puts them in the right motion or the right direction, you've got to tell them. Don't assume you're that great a presenter that they figured it out from your talk. They may have, you might be that good a presenter and they might figure it out. But what if they were daydreaming? What if they got a text at that moment that everything would come together and their mind went elsewhere for a second? At the end, tell them what you want them to do, think, help them, make sure they're transformed. Awesome. So Peter, are you planning on writing any more books? I have several ideas in mind. One is I'd like to write a public speaking book for children. I think that should be taught in school. If not, so they're better communicators, more effective communicators for the confidence aspect. So I'd like to do that. I would like to write a book on dealing with the fear of public speaking. When I say dealing with it, not trying to rid it, get rid of it, but to deal with it. And because I believe you want that feeling. You just want to be able to label it as an adrenaline rush, as opposed to a, an adrenaline undermining of what you're doing, excitement as opposed to fear. And I also want to write a book, and this is really for me, of 
about my dad in the short time my dad and I had together again he died when I was 30 the short time we had together he taught me more about business he knew nothing about business nothing he was a firefighter didn't take business courses or anything but his instinctual knowledge that he shared with me sticks with me to this day and I would love to write a book of uh what a firefighter taught me about business I think you should write that book and that's exactly the reason why I asked the question actually because uh, when you started there's so much passion oozing so you have to write that book so- I've actually tried and I couldn't get I have the 85 points that I figured he taught me I have them lined up why he told me it might have been for sports it might have been for school but how I translated that into business and over the years and i have a hard time getting to uh the implementation's fine how you can use this knowledge but it's really uh, it's so emotional for me mm-hmm. i, I kind of start stuttering on the keyboard <laughs> I, I can't i can't get through it i think you should still do it anyway that's that's uh, that's something you know and we could all be going tomorrow right so i keep saying oh that's something i'll do before I don't have time left to do it. Mm-hmm. So, truthfully, you don't know when that is. So that might be the next one. You we'll know, see. You know what I'm going to say now, don't you? <laughs> what What's the date? Give me a date. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see you here next year. Okay. When next year? <laughs> when next year? What's the date? Today's the 14th? 14th of March, 2023. Yes. We'll call it the Ides of March. We'll put it on the 15th. We'll call it the Ides of March. So. The, the 15th of March, 2024. So yeah. is this completion of the writing or is this published and in your hand ready to release? I would bet at that time uh, through the through the editing. Okay. So from your point of view, the book will be finished and ready for publish on 15th of March, 2024. All right. Okay. We're going to speak next year. We are going to speak. So that's another one. Awesome. So thinking about that then, or any other major project, Peter, what do you do to get inspired? My inspiration comes from my clients. And they really do. When we're done recording this, I'm going to give a talk in Massachusetts as long as the snow doesn't prohibit me from getting there. It's about an hour, hour and a half away. And that's where a lot of my inspiration comes from. Watching people accomplish something, even in a short 90-minute talk, whether it's the inspiration, the motivation, whatever it might be, transformation, watching them uh, shake their heads up and down like, yes, I can do it. Or you've given me the impetus to do it. Or even the okay to do it. That's a lot of inspiration for me. It's like, how could you stop this? My wife's thinking about retiring. And when she talks about retiring, it always ends with, and you'll die at your desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have the same problem. Right? And I will, because I, I don't see myself stopping this. I get too much joy watching other people succeed. And, and I'll be 65 in a couple of months. And... For my youngest clients, 
22, 24, 25 years old, by the time they hit their peak in business or their speaking careers, I will never see it. I won't be around to see it. So that's okay because the inspir inspiration still is there. And I know that it goes beyond speaking. So if someone can up their game, whether it's on stage or in a business meeting, they can up their game. Well, now it goes from hitting my quarters or getting the revenue I want or the income I want personally to, hey, honey, we can get that house on the on the beach. We can get that sailboat. We can travel the world. It Goals become dreams. And if I know I can have just a little bit to do with those dreams coming true, then what what more could you ask for in life? And why would you want to stop that? Absolutely, absolutely. Also, on a personal note, I think you owe the book to Ed for what he's taught you in your life too. Yeah, it's it's this the book I have now is you open up the dedication. First one's to my wife, my best friend, thirty two years. Uh, I was on a podcast earlier today, and the host said, "What do you like to do for fun?" Because she said, "Obviously, you're all business. What do you like to do for fun?" I said, spend time with my wife. I don't care where it is, when it is. I love to spend time with my wife. So the first dedication is to her and the second one is to my father. Beautiful. Those are the only two. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, I have a really serious question for you now. I ask okay. this to every guest who comes on the show. Are you ready? I am. Peter George. What is the most important thing you have ever learned? I was sitting on the porch one day, my parents' porch, and my father was in his favorite rocking chair, and he's rocking back and forth, and I was going up through the corporate ladder. I was just flying through it. And my father said, you got to keep other people in mind. And I said, no, dad, I don't. I won't even know these people years from now. I'm just moving up. They're not. I'm flying by them. And I saw that my father never said anything after that. But I saw the disappointment in his eyes. And that was on a Sunday evening. And that Sunday evening, I got on a plane and flew back to where I was living. I had gone home to visit my parents for that weekend. My dad was dead Tuesday. And I never, ever forgot that one of the last conversations was me disappointing him. So from that moment on, I, I kept it. I feel like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. I kept it in my heart that I had to have empathy for people. I had to strive to help people. But the last conversation I had with my dad was about how I wasn't going to do that. That stuck with me. That was the greatest lesson I ever learned. Thank you. Very, very, very thought-provoking. Thank you. So, Peter George, if someone wants to reach out to you, if they want some help on their core competence or confidence or both, or they want to know more about public speaking, how do they reach out to you? Peter George, publicspeaking.com. Nice and simple. Nice Peter and George, easy. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Thank you much, very much, Peter George. You have been amazing. 
Thank you for sharing your emotions. I really do appreciate it and your passion. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I, it was a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And to you, thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion and to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. Maybe that's speaking. Maybe it's writing a book or something else. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, hit the like, leave a review, but something more. Please share it with just one person. Maybe some words today have affected you that Peter have said. Maybe it's a relationship with your father. Maybe it's writing a book, Who, whatever it could be. But neither of us get paid to do this. This is about reaching out and helping you. And the way you can help us is just to share it with one person. If you share it with more, even better. But please share it because without your help, we can't succeed. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you have a friend and you'd like to nominate someone or someone in your company who's done something outstanding or a great story to tell, I really would love to hear from you. So you can contact me at our website, which is jeff-smith.com. You know, I really, really would love to hear from you. That's it for today. Thank you again, Peter George. You have been awesome. That's all from me. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Bye.